You are listening to Mike Seminary and Friends, a Q1 Network production. Hi, I'm Deb Seminary, and I'm sitting here with my husband, Mike, the host of Mike Seminary and Friends. It's been a little over a year since he started these podcasts, and I kind of want to know, Mike, how's it going? It's been over a year? Oh, my Lord, it's gone so fast. I'm having so much fun, and thanks to you, I wouldn't be doing it. Well, I'm certainly glad that I came up with the idea. It has been keeping you busy and occupied and not bothering me too much. So. And I've paid you a boatload of money for all the work you're doing, haven't I? Oh, yeah. Yep. I okay, really so I cook meals. I appreciate that. Um, but let's talk about the guests. You've had some really cool guests. you talked to musicians. You've even had musicians play for you. Mm-hmm. Um, some authors. Uh, Entrepreneurs. People I've never met, I, one way or another, another stumble into them, and I've and I've learned a lot. I've never read so much by preparing for who I'm going to interview, and it's been a gas. Research is important, isn't it? It is. Yep, and I'm really glad that you just don't use Wikipedia, and that's the only thing. I'm glad you really died. What's Wikipedia? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so I read a lot. I mark up books. I buy too many books. Eh, maybe not too many. It's okay. You're retired. You don't have anything else to do. And so, who are you going to have on this week? I don't know. Let's listen and find out. Okay. Welcome to Mike Seminary and Friends. Today, I'm blessed to have as my guest... An individual that has a very successful background as an entrepreneur has had the opportunity to travel the world, making friends from North Dakota to Ukraine, and in many ways has improved lives of many through game-changing innovations. And frankly, maybe most important to me, he's led a Bible study for over 40 years. Howard Dahl, welcome to Mike's Seminary and Friends. It's great to see you. How are you? Well, I'm personally good, but I'm very saddened this day um, as I think about the world events right now and my many friends in both Russia and Ukraine. Thanks for sharing that, Howard. And during the course of our time together, folks are going to understand why that is so important to you personally and in terms of your career, but more importantly, because of things that you believe. As I prepared for our conversation, um, I started thinking about your company, your family, the heritage of your family. And what we're trying to accomplish with the podcast is talk about manufacturing and its incredibly important role in North Dakota, really everywhere, but we live in North Dakota. And it would be irresponsible of me to not talk about the the Dahl Melrose family and the tradition and the rich history of it and its attachment to North Dakota. So in, if you could, before we start talking about Concord and Amity, share with us the the background of Howard Dahl, your father and your grandfather? Well, I had the privilege 
of knowing my grandfather up until uh, just after my sixth birthday. He died shortly thereafter. Uh, about a year before, I'd been run over by a wagon full of coal, two tons of coal. My legs were crushed. The elevator manager picked me up, sat me in a chair, and I was in traction in the Lisbon Hospital for uh, over six weeks. And uh, my grandfather spent eight o'clock in the morning till noon with me every single day during that, that time. Um, he was an amazing man, um, hard worker. He, he farmed 4,200 acres of land during World War II. And you think of the size of the equipment back then. And uh, really through hard work and creativity, he laid the foundation for, uh, even, though, even though he never saw the Bobcat, he laid the foundation for the company to be successful. The farm helped fund the factory. Uh, the factory became the largest manufacturing company in North Dakota when he died, even though it only had 125 employees. There was no manufacturing in North Dakota at that time. But he had this deep sense of uh, an the true entrepreneurial spirit, uh, persevered after losing the farm in the Great Depression and uh, having so many setbacks. But he, uh, he, he just kept looking ahead and uh, inspired those around him. And so after he died, my mom's four brothers and my dad owned the company and continued to develop it. Uh, the skid steer loader concept really was developed by a, a farmer from Rotsay, Minnesota, who basically told a couple of blacksmiths, uh, the Keller brothers, that if you took a versatile clutch system from their swather and put it on a little loader, I think it'd be a lot easier to clean out my turkey barn. I'm tired of shoveling turkey manure. And that that idea uh, was put into some real crude machines that were not skid steers. They were uh, little loaders with tricycle uh, wheels on the back that were very unsafe, very unstable. And a team of uh, engineers with the Keller brothers involved over the next four years developed what we know as the Bobcat. And what emerged by 1962 had rapid growth, I mean, incredible growth. And uh, there were about a thousand employees working in a town of four to 500 people and uh, being sold all over the world. And then um, uh, won't go into all the reasons why the company was sold at that time, but uh, it was sold in 19, late 1969, 70. And my one uncle and my dad bought Steiger Tractor, which was a tiny, tiny little company struggling to survive a couple million of sales in Fargo. And largely because of the Russian wheat sale and uh, in 1970, late 72, 73, uh, when wheat went, in today's dollars, wheat went to $28 a bushel, soybeans went to $52 a bushel, corn to $18 a bushel. And most North Dakota farmers and farmers throughout the U.S. and Canada had triple income. What they normally make in one year, they had that in 
all in, in but there were two straight years where there were record income. And that's really what made Steiger Tractor, the rapid growth of bigger farms and the, the really high prices of commodities during that time. And uh, I finished my, worked with a Christian organization at the University of Georgia in Florida, and then uh, wanted to prepare for life. So I went to uh, study philosophy at the University of Florida for a year and then went to a seminary for two years to study philosophy of religion. Really not sure what I wanted to do with it, but just to better understand the world. And then felt led to move to Fargo and start a company. <laughs> and uh, it only took 13 years to uh, <laughs> be successful. So 1977 to 1990, it was a struggle. It was one of the worst times to try to begin a company, but we had the privilege of developing a product that really changed the way people farmed. And uh, and uh, John Deere and Case separately came to me on the same day in the summer of 95 to buy our company, and we ended up selling it to Case. And so, yeah, it's it's been a great adventure. Thanks for sh sharing that. Before we go into uh, Amity, I have to go back to two things. The first is, so would this be the 70th or 75th year in terms of celebrating? The Melrose this Company, this is, this is year 75. The founding of the Melrose Company was 1947. The other thing, I and I'm sure depending on where you live in the country, you might have a similar situation or set of conditions. But, and maybe I learned a lot of this from my dad, who was a very successful life insurance salesman. He preferred spending most of his time out in the country talking to farm families, talking to farmers for a couple of reasons. One, he, he just felt it was just so real for him, this guy that grew up outside of Pittsburgh and ended up in, actually in Greensburg and ended up in North Dakota after a time in the service. He just loved spending time out in the country. And it, 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 during those years where it, you know, if it wasn't a drought, it was, it was inflation, it was bad, uh, the prices were terrible, or it was that period of time where there were so many foreclosures. You know, there was just a period of time where you'd have a couple good years and then a couple bad ones. Dad once shared with me that he was always amazed at how many farmers were customers of his that were gifted entrepreneurs. And he said there's just something about the, the farmer and the way they think and the conditions that they deal with that almost forces some of them to be entrepreneurs because of the distance from a city or not having enough money to bring somebody from the city to fix something. So they're always really good at repairing and thinking about how can I make this a better operation for me? You, you obviously experienced a lot of that as well. Uh, yes, indeed. The first combine in North Dakota was purchased by my grandfather in 1928. And the windrow pickups on combines left so much grain in the field 
that he said there's got to be a better way to do that. So his first invention was the windrow pickup that gently picked up grain and didn't shatter the grain so you left lots of uh, kernels on the ground. And that's why his title of his book on his life was called Inventor by Necessity. Uh, and most every idea that we've put into any machine has been because we listened to farmers. The better we listen, the better we are going to be able to make machines that really meet the needs of farmers. And there's so many creative, innovative farmers that say, have you thought about doing it this way? Have you thought about this? And uh, they're out there all day long and they see things that are not quite right. And if you listen to them, you have a pretty good clue as to what you should do. And, and you're, as to your comment, farmers are the ultimate entrepreneurs or risk takers. They lay everything on the line each year to put in their crop. Now, crop insurance does help a lot in, in today's world, but they're risk takers every year. Today, I was out for lunch with two former colleagues, and I see come into the restaurant a familiar face. And I thought to myself, he shouldn't be eating alone, as I realized he was by himself. So I invited Ag Commissioner Doug Goring to join us. And during our time together, the four of us, we talked about a lot of different things, but podcast came up. And I said, I, I'm scheduled to have a conversation today with Howard Dahl. And I want to talk about Concord and Amity. And, and he couldn't wait to share with me. And this was after one of the other guys talked about the day that GPS and GIS all went down and people are trying to figure out, what am I supposed to do? It's planting season. I don't know what to do with the equipment. And he talked about when the first Concord that they had and how great it was. And it wasn't always straight in the beginning, but you got really good. And I think he said it was had a 40-foot span or something. And he talked about how that minimum, and I'm not a farmer, I don't understand any of this, Howard, how minimum till equipment and the air seeder revolutionized the ag industry. And it was the Concord that really did that. And Howard and your brother Brian Dahl's company. And so, so here's the first thing I'm really curious about. You're the outside relationship building guy, and you've shared before that Brian was the internal systems kind of guy. Two questions, two part. Where did you develop your people building skills? And the second was, who's the innovator in during your time at Concord and Amity, who's the innovator with the ideas to make these great improvements? Well, uh, serendipitously, when my father and mother moved to Fargo, uh, and my brother Brian went to high school in Fargo, I finished college at the University of North Dakota the year that they moved to Fargo. Um, my dad, while we lived in Gwinter, like nothing more than to go out and look at crops three times a week in the evening, get in the car and just go look at crops. So he said, I need to buy some land around Fargo. And so he bought a couple quarters of land uh, just northwest of Fargo so that he could keep driving out and looking at crops. The man he hired to farm the land or that he rented the land out to, Jake Gust, is one of the most creative, innovative engineers in North Dakota. 
And having dinner with Jake shortly after we moved to Fargo, uh, we worked first on a small tractor. And then when we became aware of the concept of air seating that was starting to come in and a lot of the prob- problems, especially 1980, most of the air seeded crops did not come up because they did not have precision packing and depth control. And Jake is the one who came up with a patented idea of how to do that. And then uh, Daryl Justison, who's like a brother and was uh, uh, our, our VP of sales and marketing for 37 years, still on the board of directors of Amity. Uh, Daryl had worked for the Prasco uh, air seeder company that had the seeder that would bulk fill seed and fertilizer, put it in the ground quickly, but they were doing it with either a chisel plow or field cultivator, and the depth control was bad, the pa- it was not packed, and so when you had a dry year like 1980, a lot of the crop never came up, and so it was a d- disaster. And so it was a merger of Daryl's thoughts about air seeding, what was needed, and Jake Gust, and and then lots and lots of other people giving input. There's new innovations that we did every year, and most of those came from people that we talked to. Um, and uh, we actually had a remarkable run between 90 and 95. We had four to 500 farmers pay a tuition to come to Fargo and learn how to better run their Concord air seeder. We didn't allow any prospects to come. It was only for existing customers. If somebody said, well, I'm thinking of buying a Concord, can I come? And we said, no, this is only for our existing customers. And it was it was one of the most marvelous uh, experiences in my, in fact, I told somebody recently the happiest five years of my business career were that 90 to 95 era and the interaction with these innovative farmers all over the uh, the world who uh, we, we became very close friends with many of them. This relationship building skill that you have is from your dad and your mom or both or you just kind of figured it out? No. Um, if you talk to any people at Steiger, when Steiger went from two million to one hundred and six million of sales in five years, of you know, first five or six years of my dad was there, uh, and they had twelve hundred employees by nineteen seventy seven, and one of our employees who worked for us at Con- or at Am- both Concord and Amity, but had been with Steiger for um, at least fifteen years with when my dad was the chairman of the board there. He said, your dad knew the name of all 1,200 employees. And I I said, I don't think so. And he swore that, yes, he did. And uh, so you can read into that what you want. But my uh, our father was a very, very caring individual. And, I, and I, I remember a seminal moment when I was young, when somebody made fun of a welder that just went to the bar after work and drank and sort of a demeaning comment. And my dad got upset with him and said, don't you ever forget that that welder is as important to the company as I am. Mm. And so he, he just, he got it. Yeah. And 
Just on a side note, this is one of the funniest stories of all. Wall Street Journal did a cover story on Bobcat probably 15 to 20, I don't know the exact year, but at least 15 years ago. And I got a call. And one of the questions was, did you live in a different part of town than the workers in the factory? And I just howled, I laughed, and I said, well, my dad was on the same bowling team as the machinists and welders in the factory, <laughs> in the same church council. <laughs> and we had a town of, uh, in, in 1970, the, I think the population was 400 people. <laughs> Before I forget, was, was Jake a mechanical engineer? Yes. Well, actually, he's a civil engineer, and he's been very active in the Water Commission of North Dakota for years and years. But he, he, he's an incredibly, incredibly gifted, in a, and he's been a mentor to our young engineers for the last 50 or 45 years. He's, uh, he's still with us. <laughs> That's why I know that name, the Water Commission Connection, by the way. Well, speaking of seminal moments, you had shared with some of us some time ago, where you had some challenges in, in the business. And the, the, your clients, the farmers, your customers, they were convinced this is the best equipment. I think this was, was, it was still Concord. And there, there were some challenges. And they decided, correct me if I'm wrong, that, that they have to pay in advance Am I saying that correctly? Yeah, there, there, there's a variety of things that took place. But November 20th, 1987, our bank called our line of credit. And I don't, I think it's impossible to run a manufacturing business without a line of credit unless you're loaded with cash and we didn't have cash. And um, we had farmers. Uh, one called my brother and said, can I buy one before you go out of business? And then another person who happened to be a friend of my dad's who had started using our equipment and it changed his farming operation. And um, there's 20 different things that happened, but we had just hit the peak of perfecting the product and it was working really, really well. We just didn't have enough volume and uh, so from 1987, uh, November 20th, until into 1990, I didn't know how we were going to meet payroll almost every week. And uh, that's a long story of how things happened to work out every two weeks when I needed to meet payroll. But uh, it was a painful period. But looking back, one of the best eras of my entire life. In a little bit. We'll switch gears, and I want to talk about Bible study and your faith and your walk. And but the period of time you just described, and me knowing just enough about um, your walk, starting back in college. During that period of time, when you would wake up in the morning before your feet hit the floor. Were you praying first, or were you starting to think about how to get through the day or the week, or was there, there, there's, the line was so close that you were doing both at the same time? If that's an appropriate question. Yeah, no, there, there were days of despair, 
like, God, did I hear your voice in 1977 when I felt you wanted me to move to Fargo and get involved in manufacturing? Did I really hear your voice back then? So there were that moments. But after the bank called our line of credit, I did something that was the correct thing. I prayed for two and a half days, you know, not every moment, but I fasted. So a 60-hour fast and prayed during that time. And what should I do? And the voice was from the Lord, I believe, was very clear. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You owe 238 creditors money. You owe two different floor plan companies money. You owe two different banks money. And you're in a position where you don't have an answer for any of that. But what you do know is people want truth. People don't want you to say, well, uh, you know, we're just have a little bump in the road and things are going to be fine. You know, people want to know the ugly truth. So I wrote a lengthy letter to all 238 people we owed money to. And that was after praying as to what I do. And I basically laid out that on the positive note, we have a product that we know is the best air seeder ever invented, that we have farmers who love it. And it's going to be, with the support of everybody, it's going to be two or three years before we're going to be back on our feet. Um, Here's three choices for you. You can take preferred stock in our company. You can simply wait. Or if we get some cash along the way, you can take 50 cents on the dollar for what we owe you now. And then if you if you choose to work with us in any one of these ways, we're going to be loyal to you long term. We will not go to somebody else to buy steel or bearings or tires or whatever. And 237 of the 238 agreed to one of those three. And so it put the, to stop the pressure. But the most remarkable event that happened of all was we owed about $6 million to Borg Warner Acceptance Corporation. Back then, farm equipment companies would build lots of machinery and put it on the dealer's lot at floor plan paying 10% interest, so $600,000 a year of interest. And we can't imagine 10% interest today, but uh, in the early 80s, it was 20. And and at this time, it was about 10% that we were paying. The night before I went to meet the head of Borg Warner Acceptance Corporation, I read in my daily reading, Nehemiah chapter 1. And the last part of it says, May you, before Nehemiah went into the king, he said, Lord, may you grant me favor in the sight of this man. It just happened to be my reading. And so when I go into the, I have no leverage. I can't tell the head of Borg Warner what to do. I can tell him that we've got good equipment and we believe there's a way to orderly sell it. And again, back to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I knew that it's in his best interest to get his money back as opposed to liquidating the equipment at 20 cents on the dollar. He agreed to stop interest on everything. No interest is going to be due. 
And furthermore, we're going to help you finance some of these air seeders. We'll give three-year financing um, to uh, to farmers. That changed everything. When he and I, I just I, I, I left with hope that we have a chance. It was still two really tough years, but that's just one of many things that happened during that time period. And so, as a result, I don't have a lot of pride that I created something great uh, by my ability, but rather it was a grace of a lot of people that allowed us to survive and thrive as a company. There are a lot of good people out there, Howard. You know, we get we hear the barking from some people that we sometimes wonder, but most people are good people. They they are. They they don't want to lose and they'd rather see somebody win because we we feel good when we can help. Most of us feel good when we can help. That's just Lord grant me favor in front of this man. I just love that. Before I forget, when you were praying prior to 77, were you thinking that ministry of some sort was your calling? I was, let's put it this way. I was um, uncertain. <laughs> uh, I'd worked with students for six years. Um, well, four years full-time and, and two years part-time in, in campus ministry. And I loved talking to students. But the students asked me so many questions that I couldn't answer. And I said, I, I need to study. I, just if nothing more preparing for my life. I need to better understand a lot of issues. And so that's why I went to seminary. First of all, a year at the University of Florida in philosophy as a part-time grad student. And then two years at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, which had a philosophy of religion uh, program. And, uh, and during that time, I worked part-time at International Harvester in marketing research. And, and I realized with who I was, the whole background I had, uh, agriculture and machinery were, were an important part of my life. I had no idea where it was going to go, but as I prayed, I. I just felt that I was to move to Fargo. Uh, my wife, who's from Chattanooga, wasn't sure what <laughs> was going to happen at that time, but uh, you know, we've now been here 45 years. And we're all better off, by the way. So, by the way, let Ann know that as Deb and I drove down to Florida two months ago and then back, just recently went by her actually through Chattanooga and thought of her, especially on the way back, because we had met there. Was it Concord that opened doors of foreign expansion for you, or Amity or both? Or which one really let, and this might be kind of hard because of the timing, but which, which one opened the doors for you to do, uh, build relationships in Ukraine and Russia? Uh, Concord. Um, Concord. Yeah, we shipped five Concord air seeders over there in the fall of 91, about six weeks before the Soviet Union fell apart. We knew that they had huge fields and farms like we have, and we knew how well our machine worked here. And I had so many farmers give me big hugs 
and say, seating used to be the worst part of my life, and now it's the very best. And they would just give me a big bear hug and thank me for the equipment we built. And we literally sold 600 Concords into that marketplace, Russia, Ukraine, Kazakhstan, before John Deere sold their first one. <laughs> How did you know of the need and size of the farms, by the way? Well, well, historically, you, you, you just knew the size of the farms here, but we, we really got introduced directly through Art and Frank DeFair from Winnipeg, uh, the Palliser Furniture Company. And, and they're an important part of our story. They became an investor in our company at a critical time. But their mother and father had both fled Russia, one in 1919, one in 1929. So they, uh, from Winnipeg, and they were revisiting their heritage sites and met a very important agronomist who said, uh, we need better seating equipment. Well, it was just a pretty simple a step for them to say, well, you need to take a look at the Concorde. And uh, indeed, then we shipped them and uh, we actually began manufacturing in Siberia with a company. And that's that's another long story that the company's doing well, but we have no ownership in it. Um, we felt we just wanted to help them get going. And uh, and uh, it's, it's still a thriving uh, factory in, in Siberia. Some enough point here. I met Brian, your, your brother, when I believe when I left UND, he actually moved into the house where I had lived for some time. That's the first time I met him. Then I got reacquainted when the person I was working for at the time, Niles Hushka, we did an executive luncheon in Fargo about sustainable energy, and both you and Brian showed up. So that's the first time I had seen him in many, many years. And then I saw you one other time at a restaurant, and I, and I just went up to reintroduce myself, and I believe you were having dinner. It's at the, uh, can't think of the name of the place, Doolittle's. It was at Doolittle's. And you introduced me to this fellow, uh, Ukrainian farmer and a real large farmer, and not his side, but in terms of the, the farm operation that he managed. So, when you sold Concord and you and Brian formed Amity, it was most of the plan to continue to um, do a lot of business uh, overseas? Uh, yes. Uh, it was a pretty complex transaction we made with Case. Uh, we sold the Concord business, but we kept the rights for Russia, Ukraine, Kazakhstan, and China for Concord. And half my time was devoted to the president of Case, Steve Lamb, just doing special projects for him. And I think that would have been a marvelous long-term plan, and uh, I, I really liked the leadership of Steve and enjoyed thoroughly what I was doing. But then Case sold out to Fiat, and the Italians had a very different view of business, and I'm not going to belabor the point, but it, it just was not going to work. But 
so Amity was going to be marketing all the Concord equipment in that area, plus develop our sugar beet equipment. Well, we bought a sugar beet company because we were building material for this company and they couldn't pay their bill. And so we basically took over the company. We bought all their inventory receivables, paid them a royalty, and we developed that, had no idea what an important move that was. And uh, we, we've shipped a thousand sugar beet harvesters into Russia, Ukraine over the years. And uh, we, uh, and, and then of course, for 20 years, we owned the Wilrich company in Wapaton, and we probably shipped 2,000 field cultivators over that period of time into that marketplace, as well as some other Wilrich equipment. And uh, so it's, uh, for a while, we had a catalog of about 15 or 20 different products, and it's hard to focus when you're trying to sell that many products with a small team. And uh, so now we've basically consolidated uh, with Amity strictly being a sugar beet uh, equipment company as well as some soil sampling equipment and then uh, we now have a product that uh, is for the dairy industry it, it empties 65,000 pounds of silage in 90 seconds and we, we really developed that for a specific uh, customer Riverview dairy in terms of your business plan, and, I, and if I ask something that, you know, is confidential or something, please let me know. But in terms of your business plan, it, a significant percentage of your annual sales and revenue and profits is still dependent on your relationships in Ukraine and Russia? It, it's much less. Between 2002 and 2012, 50% of our sales and probably 65% of our profit was from that uh, export business. So it was very okay. important. How many times have you traveled during the course of your career in Concord and Amity to Ukraine and Russia? Well, I've been 93 times into Russia, Ukraine. Uh, and I usually go to both countries on each trip, but the you know, have I been in Russia 93 times or Ukraine 93? It's probably 85 in each country, but 93 trips into that marketplace. And before that, I traveled into Czechoslovakia and to Hungary uh, on, before we began our business in the former Soviet Union. So I'm guessing, and it, and other trips to Western Europe. So I'm, I'm guessing I've probably made 120 trips across the Atlantic mm -hmm. and I think eight across the Pacific. Well, needless to say, the, the current state of affairs in that part of the world uh, must be heartbreaking for you and your company because they're not just customers, there's friends and people you love. As you look back during... I'm just going to take it in a five-year chunk in terms of time span. What, the last five years, what technology improvement or advancement was maybe the most significant in terms of integrating it into current manufacturing of your products and, and, and 
what that change was like compared to the uh, the air seeder that was so revolutionary. Yeah, I I wouldn't say that we've done anything revolutionary since the Concorde air seeder. I'd say what we've done has been more evolutionary, uh, gradual improvements. But the Concorde was a, a game changer where you could save 80% of your fuel cost. You could keep organic matter in the soil and you could put fertilizer below the seed at the time of planting, do it all at once. So you'd get increased yield, less labor, less fuel, and have the highest yielding. I mean, we, we were competing against many other seeders and in every contest, we always won with the highest yield. So it wasn't a sacrifice of yield at all. It was savings of fuel, time, and actually increasing yield. So that, that was revolutionary. And, uh, but I would say we've made great improvements every year on our bead equipment. Again, largely listening to farmers, but we have automatic height control on the defoliator, we have automatic depth control on the, on the harvester. Uh, we're uh, ISO compatible, so it uh, you know, goes into the ISO system on the <clears throat> tractor, and uh, and we're we're constantly making incremental improvements. I, I maybe you could argue the new silage cart that we designed just from an idea for Riverview Dairy to keep choppers, million dollar choppers running 24 seven, keeping trucks out of the field and being able to get the crop out in real wet conditions. Uh, I, you know, that, it's an incredible uh, design feat of our engineering team in conjunction with uh, Riverview Dairy giving their direction as to what they wanted. And, and we have other things that we're continuing to look at for improvements. And I think robotics are going to be uh, much more involved in almost everything we do. We're not going to do the robotics ourselves, but taking our equipment and making it robotic compatible is going to be a big part of our future. And the piece of equipment that pulls what you, the equipment that you develop more than likely at some point, and maybe they already are, pretty much self-driving. They can be controlled from uh, the comfort of somebody's office versus being actually in the cab of the equipment. Uh, it's a fun time to be involved in almost anything with all this incredible technology that's making really cool improvements, frankly. Yeah, it, it is. Uh, and, and obviously software is driving a lot of it. And, and we, we've been involved for six years with a software company geared toward agronomists, helping to make uh, the management for an agronomist and giving guidance to a farmer, hel helping to simplify that. And, and we've built that strictly by listening to agronomists. You know, you don't like what you have. If you had a perfect world, what would a software look like for your agronomy work? And so that's still a startup, uh, but we're getting a lot of traction with it. Manufacturing, generally speaking, in how it contributes to local, regional, statewide, and then beyond economies. How do you 
think or feel, it has contributed in, a, in the most positive way possible to those communities in terms of the presence of a manufacturing operation? Well, I'm a little bit biased here, but this is not original with me. True value add is agriculture, it's manufacturing, it's mining, and forestry. Most all other businesses don't have that big value add piece. But when you take a tire, a rim, this and that, you put it together, um, it's an incredible value add. Obviously, agriculture is that. You put a seed in the ground, and one seed has a potential of producing 600 seeds. Uh, so that that's, uh, I think, the, the importance of manufacturing for a really healthy, diversified economy. It's, it's really important. When, when you look at the types of talent required during the course of the next five years, do, do, you, do you believe that the skills, qualities, and talents that somebody has to have in that time frame moving forward is any different than the previous five or ten years? You know, if I look at my own world, I, I don't see a big difference in my manufacturing world, but clearly we're going to need a lot more people, ability to do coding. I mean, software is going to be much, much uh, more important. Uh, It's already central to many, many industries, but that's going to increase. I do think we're going to have to either bring in a lot of immigrants to do welding, to do, there's not a lot of uh, kids going to high school in Fargo that say, my dream job is to become a welder at Amity Technology. Uh, I happen to think the world (laughs) of uh, our welders, and I'm just amazed at uh, their talent, their diligence of doing a hard job. Um, In some cases, 60-hour weeks in the summer when it's 80 degrees, 90 degrees, and... uh, but it's a necessary part of our economy, you know, absent, you know, the really high quality machinists and welders, we wouldn't be able to build anything. Mm. Well, to your point, Mike Rowe, who I happen to be a fan of the dirty jobs guy. I listen to his podcast. He preaches from the pulpit of, we have possibly a difficult future in front of us because not enough people go into those trades and if there are not enough people go into the trades, all of a sudden you have a new supply chain problem. And then the cost of what you're trying to have fixed anyway goes up. So he is a big supporter, a big advocate of what you just said. People going into trades and immigrants, frankly, being part of that uh, solution for that problem. Last question, then I want to talk about Bible study, if you don't mind. What, what's your personal goal the, the next uh, two to five years with regards to your, your business? Well, my main goal as I get older is on a daily basis to love God and love others and to be a better listener to others, to value relationships. Uh, 
I intend to spend more time with my grandkids um, um, who are young. For, for the most part, I have two grandkids in California that are 15 and 11, but my six grandkids in Fargo are six and under. And uh, I do intend to spend more time with it. I, I just intend to value uh, relationships a lot more. I, I think I have in the past, but it, increasingly it it's really, really important. Each conversation I want to look at is a sacred conversation. And, and I love C.S. Lewis's statement, there's no ordinary people. Every person mm. is created in the image of God. And, and I, I, in my better moments, I live that and affirm that. But many times I look at people as an interruption to what I want to do. Uh, my, my mind is on some other thing and somebody walks into my office or somebody calls or whatever. And so I, I want to uh, really treasure people more. I'm going to tee up our, thanks for sharing that, Howard, tee up our Bible study question with this, because if it were not for the pandemic, I wouldn't have been able to be part of the Bible study, more than likely. What did the COVID pandemic do to operations for Amity and for you, especially during that first three to six, nine months? My my leadership team were so afraid of, you know, I'm over 70 when the pandemic started, and uh, they, they wanted me to stay away from the office completely. And so anything I did was... You know, by thankfully Zoom uh, should have bought Zoom stock in January of uh, two, 2020, but uh, I uh, I stayed away from the office. My first time between March 15th uh, and July 15th, I went to a retirement party that was outside. Never went in, and I stayed away from people. I you know no, no one really knew what it was, but we we were very careful. At Amity, we didn't allow any customers in the plant. We were wiping down everything regularly. No meetings were in a, in a meeting room. Everybody just socially distanced. And of course, welders and assembly people, uh, they're, they're necessarily going to be beside each other. In the first year, we had one COVID case, a welder who got COVID from his wife. And so we amazingly went through that year with... Uh, you know, no, no interruptions uh, to our to our production, but uh, didn't have a single customer visit us. Uh, salesman for steel and other things. Nobody was allowed in our in our factory. The you know it, front door is basically locked, and uh, and so we were very isolated. But um, yeah. well, it was because of the pandemic. I got to, I was invited by Tom Campbell to join this Bible study every Tuesday morning, which has been meeting for over 40 years. So I asked you, was your call to go into ministry? You're kind of doing that anyway, right? Every Tuesday morning. How did it start? And what, this is probably a stupid question, what keeps you so enthusiastic about doing it every Tuesday morning at 7 o'clock? It's you know, it's a high priority for me, and uh, and I and I again, it gets back to relationships. I, I 
I so value and and it, we got together twice last summer at my lake home so i mean you have the zoom relationship and then when you get together it's just like wow this is so special and uh, i i guess it is a calling uh when i moved to fargo i tried to find a men's bible study i couldn't find one i i went around there were three or four guys meeting at the elks club and they talked about some spiritual things once in a while, but it wasn't a Bible study. And so I, I started one. And uh, a year before, and got a man by the name of Art Grimstead, who was a religion professor at Concordia, uh, involved and let him take over the teaching of one. Then I started another one. And uh, Art actually had about five different, every morning I think he had a study, and at one time probably 100 men meeting in uh, his various studies. And uh, I, um, I, I'm just grateful for the, uh, the fellowship. And uh, as I told you, had a wonderful hour with uh, James Lamont uh, yesterday, just talking at a very deep level about our lives and what matters. And so uh, I, I do believe the Bible is a form of prayer in that it's God speaking to us. And prayer rightfully is a conversation with God. And we're at our best prayer times when we let him speak to us through through the word. And so I love the time of preparation. And uh, we happen to be going through John right now, which is all about truth and light, which our world has such a shortage of. And, uh, so I'm personally, I get ministered to more than any people in the group by just reading the word and letting it speak. Uh, and so it, I'm really speaking to myself as much to the, as to others in the group. Hmm. Well, I'm, I'm so thankful that you started it. And I so appreciate Tom letting me know. And I rarely, rarely miss. It's usually because I'm traveling somewhere just can't get to a computer or something because it it it's just so refreshing and nourishing and I learned so much and I appreciate you so much Howard for doing it. I'm going to ask you a magic wand question. If you had a magic wand you could wave over the heads of aspiring entrepreneurs. That, that that's that's what they want to do. They they want to create something. What's the one thing you'd want them to know about their journey? Um, the better you are at listening, the better chance you have of succeeding. And the greatest quality of an entrepreneur is when you latch on to a vision for a product or service and you believe in it, don't quit. You know, perseverance is... If you believe in what you're doing, perseverance is the most important quality of an entrepreneur. But uh, your success will large, and, and my son, who's been hugely successful in the Silicon Valley, his simple mantra, it comes from Y Combinator, make something people want. And you have to listen well to do that. Another magic wand question, because... Almost every startup, and then along the way, even somewhat mature, 
company. They need money. They need investors. So now you're waving it over the heads of prospective investors. I don't care if they're private or institutional or banks. And these young entrepreneurs are coming to them. What's the one thing you want those investors to know? Oh, boy. Um, you, you've, I'm sure you've heard the saying a number of times. Uh, when you need money for a startup, don't go to a bank. A bank should not make investments in startups. Uh, they have a responsibility to maintain their capital in the bank. And so you raise money from friends, family, and fools. And, uh, and I've been a fool. I've probably made 20 angel investments that I look back and say, that, that, was, that was foolish, you know, what, what I did. But I, I had a soft spot for somebody who I loved what they were doing. I loved their passion. And many times they were a person of faith that I uh, just wanted to support. But um, there's three legs to a successful business. The uh, first one is the product or service that's worthwhile. And that's the most important one. The second one is the team. And then the third is money. Money will come if you have a great idea and you have the right team. So I, I tell people, before you worry about the money, make sure you have the right idea and the right team. And because people invest in people they believe in. Hmm. Howard, I've been really blessed to, to get to know you and uh, Anne a little bit, but particularly you. And one thing I want folks to know that, you know, between your, your grandfather, E.G. Melrose, and then your dad, uh, Gene, you and your brother and other people in your companies, North Dakota has been uniquely and profoundly impacted in many positive ways because big things have happened uh, as a result of perseverance, going, working through challenges, dealing with pains, uh, surrounding yourself with really talented people, innovative, creative thinkers, people that just don't want to give up. And North Dakota is a far better place because of the Dahl family and the Mello family. God bless you. Thank you so much for doing what you've done and what you continue to do. Uh, we, I sure appreciate you, Howard. Well, Mike, the feeling's mutual. And uh, you and Deb and Ann and I need to have a dinner again soon. As long as there's pecan pie in the deal, I'm, I am absolutely all in, Howard. Well, I've told you, my dad's request for his birthday and for Father's Day was pecan pies from Anne every year. That's what she'd make for him. Nothing made him happier. I'll get you my birthday. <laughs> Thanks so much, Howard. Appreciate okay, you. Thanks, Mike.